All right, that's it. Go ahead and find a seat. There you go. If you're sitting down or on your way down, go ahead and grab your Bibles. Turn to Ruth chapter 2. We are going to be continuing our series, which is, uh, which is awesome. The reason we're in the, the book of Ruth is because um, is I gave Bob the choice. I kind of gave him this, uh, this, this um, option of like, I said, you can choose any topic, any book of the Bible. And out of all the books of the Bible that Bob could possibly have chosen, he chose Ruth. And I don't know it's, if it's because his wife is named that and he's trying to, you know, be in good graces or if his wife made him do this book. I am not sure. I do know this, though, about the book of Ruth and about the way it broke down. So Bob's in charge of this whole series. He's in charge. He told me what to do. And here's what's so funny about that. I asked him for permission to share this, uh, so I'm not just knocking on him. There he is in the back right there. Okay. So the book of Ruth is divided into really like two parts. There is the, there is the part um, about providence, the, the biblical theme of providence, um, and then there's the biblical theme of redemption. And so this is a three-part book, right, or three-part series. And so Bob took the first part, and he talked about providence. And uh, he will be speaking next week, and he'll wrap it up with redemption, which leaves me with a whole lot of nothing, right? (laughs) And so um, uh, it's basically like uh, Bob took all the meat. So you had like a steak and crab dinner. He had the crab in the beginning, and then he's having the steak at the end, and I get the green vegetables. That's what I get. And so today what I'm going to try to do is I'm going to try to tie in the two themes. I'm going to try to tie together this concept of providence and this concept of redemption and bring them together and kind of do, if you will, if it could be done, the Empire Strikes Back version of the series uh, to make it as best as possible in the beginning. So we're going to continue the story of Ruth, but in order to do that, we need to do a quick little review of what we talked about last time. Um, So let's start in Ruth 1. Uh, chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to start right at the beginning there and do a little review. Um, Here's what it says. In the days when the judges ruled in Israel, so it's given us a time period here. We're talking about the 400 years time span between uh, when Moses was around and when they uh, put the king or the crown on King Saul's head. So that's the time period we're talking about. A severe famine came upon the land. And the land we're talking about is where Jesus would eventually be born. It's Bethlehem. It is also known as the house of bread. But unfortunately, the town with all the bread has no bread in it because they are in a famine. And so in the midst of this famine, what happens is the Bible zooms in, it focuses in, it centers around this family, this one singular family. It's Elimelech, Naomi, and the two sons, Malon and Kilion, which are two very strong Klingon names. So... And this family that we zoom in on decided because of the famine, we're going to move to a place called Moab. And so they head to Moab, and the two sons decide they want to get married to two Moabite ladies, which is a big no-no for Israelites. Their names were Orpha, which I don't think, I don't know if Orpha was related to Oprah in some shape or form, but I don't, I'm not sure. But the other gal is named Ruth, and she is obviously the lady in which the book is named after and a big part of the story. So they're there, this family's there, they just grew by two ladies, and then tragedy strikes. And the father, Elimelech, he dies. And then the two sons, Malion and Kilion, they, they pass away as well. And so really, there's only people left are Naomi and the two, her two daughter-in-laws. 
And so Naomi decides, because she hears rumors that, hey, food has come back to um, Bethlehem. So we're going to go back to Israel. We're going to go back to our hometown, and we're going to see what's there. And so she decides she's going to head home. And so she goes home, and on the way, she tells both of her daughter-in-laws who have been walking with her, hey, you should go back to Moab. You should stay there because that's the only place that you're going to have a good life uh, and, and you're going to be able to prosper. You can find new husbands. You could start all over. So just go back. Don't come with me. And Orpah, uh, she decided to obey what she said, but um, Ruth did not. She made a very important and very big decision and she said, I'm not going to go back to Moab. I'm going to go with you to Israel. I'm going to go with you to Bethlehem. And this statement and this decision is so huge. Um, it's recorded um, in Ruth. And one of the crazy things is, is it's quoted at a lot of weddings. All right, so here's what she says on her way back. She says to Naomi, she says, wherever you go, so mother-in-law, wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. And people stop there at weddings. They don't go on to this part where it says, wherever you die, I will die. <laughs> and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. And so here's what Ruth is saying. She is saying, she is declaring a dependence upon God. She is saying, I would rather have a life of poverty with your God, with the Israelite God, with Yahweh, than to have the possibility of a life of prosperity without your God, with no God. And so she's saying, I want to follow you. Whatever this God, this Yahweh that I have seen in you, I want that too. And it doesn't matter what it's going to take. It doesn't matter how poor I'm going to be because she's truly choosing a life of poverty. There's really, if you go into the details of it, which we can't today, Bob did last week, there is no hope for Naomi. And if Ruth is attaching herself to Naomi and to Naomi's God, there's truly not a whole lot of hope for her in this lifetime. And so here they are. They're back in Bethlehem with nothing. They are dirt poor, and they have liter literally nothing, hopelessly hopeless, right? And all of a sudden, in chapter 2, the chapter I get to talk about, there is a little glimmer, a little sliver of hope. Light starts to enter in because Naomi made this prayer in chapter 1, and in the beginning of chapter 2, we start to see this light come in. So that's what we're going to talk about today. So let's continue the story. Chapter 2, verse 1. It says, now, there was a wealthy and influential man in Bethlehem named Boaz. He's a big part of the story. Who was a relative of Naomi's husband, Elimelech. One day, Ruth, the Moabite, and what's interesting is she's referenced this. She's labeled this all the time. She is the foreigner. She is the immigrant. She is the outsider. One day, Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go into the harvest fields to pick up, or other translations use the word to glean, to glean the stalks of grain left behind by anyone who is kind enough to let me do it. So we need to talk a little bit about gleaning and what that is. Because in the Hebrew law, in the Jewish law, and specifically Leviticus 25, they talk about this law where landowners, so if you owned a piece of land, you are supposed to leave the edges. You are supposed to leave the outside. You're not supposed to harvest all of your field. You're supposed to leave a portion of it on the outside for the poor to be able to come in and glean and pick up what you've left over. 
And it's an interesting thing, and I love how God put this into the law of his people, because what he literally is doing, he cares about the poor. So he's literally creating a modern-day soup kitchen, if you will, by not allowing them to, to field or to harvest everything so that the hungry can find food. And so if you are a good landowner, if you are a righteous landowner, if you are a landowner walking in obedience with God, you would leave the margins of your field for the marginalized. It was in the law. You would leave the margins for the marginalized. A percentage of your field, your profits, were literally set aside for the poor. The poor, catch this, were literally eating into your profits if you were a landowner. It would be like, modern day, think about this, a, um, a grocery store owner. They, have, they own the grocery store. They own everything that's inside of there. And so they would allow, allow and even invite in to have the, the homeless to come in. And they'd give them, let's just say, these green bags. And in these two green bags, they say, hey, go and get whatever you need. And they would walk through and they would grab their rice. They'd grab their flour. They'd grab whatever they need. They'd grab their meat. They'd put it in there, fill up these two bags. And if they got to the front and they were to go to check out the, the registers, the ladies and the guys at the register, they'd look at that and they'd go, the green bags. Ah, that means that they can just come on through. They don't have to pay. It's a beautiful thing. And it's exactly what God had set up into place when it came to gleaning. The poor had a place to find food because the landowners were following and obeying what God said. And so that's what gleaning is. That's what Ruth is doing. She simply says to Naomi, hey, I want to go and do this. I want to go and get us food. And so verse 2, Naomi replied, all right, my daughter, go ahead. So Ruth went out and gathered grain behind the harvesters. And this next phrase, it's, it's interesting because it's kind of like a little wink and a little nod by the author here. He's kind of like, ah, oh, wink, wink, here we go. He says, and, it's, and, it, and as it happened, or just so, or it, it just happened to be so, or circumstances were this way, she found herself, Ruth found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz. The, relation, the relative of her father-in-law, Elimelech. Now, the name Boaz literally means strong man. And I think it has to, because when you say the word Boaz, right? I, it's, that's, a, that's a great name. If I have a son, I want to name my son Boaz. Like, I feel like I'm halfway cussing when I say that, right? Boaz. I, I mean, I'm named Jake. That's my name, right? Like, there's Boaz, and then there's Jake. So, um, <laughs> It's a strong man. He's a powerful man. And so that's who we're talking about here. And at this point, what happens in the verses is that the author moves into a greeting. And it's really interesting because there's really no reason for verse 4 to really be in there. It's kind of like out of place. But the reason, and the only reason I could think that it's in there, is that God is trying to show us what kind of a man Boaz is. Just what kind of a man. Because here's what it is. It's a greeting. So verse 4, while she, being Ruth, was there in the field, Boaz arised, arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters, so his workers. The Lord be with you, he said. The Lord bless you, the harvester replied. So it's very interesting. So that's their greeting. That's how they say hello. The Lord be with you. And then they respond, the Lord bless you. And I'm trying to think, we don't, we don't have those kind of greetings anymore. The only one I could think of is like on Easter Sunday, one day a year, old-fashioned, everyone would be like, the Lord has risen. And then people would respond back, the Lord has risen 
Indeed, there you go. Exactly. All right, so you've been to church before. That's great. All right. The only reason, the reason that that's in here, the reason it's significant, and it is significant, is because what the Bible is showing us, what the author of Ruth is showing us, is that, that Boaz is a man of faith in a faithless time. He is choosing to be a man of faith in a faithless time. Bob read this verse last week, Judges 21, 25. It says, in those days, Israel had no king, and all the people did whatever seemed right in their eyes. So what they were doing is they weren't actually doing right. They were just doing what they wanted to. And so it is a faithless time. And what the author of Ruth is telling us is in the midst of this faithless time, there is a man who is still faithful. His name is Boaz. And he leaves margins on the side of his fields for the marginless. And Ruth just happened to find her way, just happened to find her way into that field. Verse 5. Then Boaz asked his foreman, who is the young woman over there? Who does she belong to? And the foreman replied, she is the young woman from Moab. Again, she's kind of stuck with that label, this outsider label. Who came back with Naomi, she asked me this morning if she could gather grain behind the harvesters. She has been hard at work ever since, except for a few minutes of rest in the shelter. I love the detail there. Just, she's a good worker. And, and that's actually who Ruth is. And so Bob spent a lot of time focusing on Naomi last week. Let me just take a couple seconds and talk about the woman and the character of Ruth. She is a good woman, right? If you want to, ladies, if you ever want to model your lives after someone, she would be a great person to model your life after. She is a hard worker. It says that she barely took a break. And I love the fact that she works hard. That is like a critical characteristic to me that I just, I love personally. I love people who work hard. I grew up in the country. I grew up on a farm. I grew up doing chores every weekend. Every weekend there were no Saturday cartoons. We had to get up and we had to chop wood or we had to drag brush. That was the deal that we had to do. And, and I would be sweating. I would be tired. I'd ask my dad, hey, I want a break. I'm thirsty. I want to get a drink. And my dad would be like, drink the sweat from your brow, you know, and <laughs> he said that to me. I'm not joking, and so I tried. It doesn't work. I didn't know what child abuse was back then, um, but I do know now, but I, he taught in me, he built in me this idea to work hard, and, and that's what Ruth does. She works hard. She labors. She puts effort into um, what she believes, and in this, she wants to go out in the field and provide for Naomi, and that's the second thing about Ruth. She is loyal, right? She is super, super, super loyal. It's like you could choose this life and go back and start over and have a fresh start in prosperity, or you could choose Naomi and her God and go with her, and she chose to. And then not only that, right when they get right back to Bethlehem, right when they enter into the town, she's like, she doesn't wait for Naomi to go, hey, we don't have food, we don't have anything. She literally just says, hey, I want to go into the fields, and I want to beg. Literally, that's what it is. It's like begging. It's gleaning. And so she chooses to do that. She is so loyal, she jumps into that. And by being loyal to Naomi, she is being loyal to God as well. And the third thing that I think is amazing about her is she's completely courageous. And if you read over this passage, if you read over this book, you may not notice it from first glance, but she is literally taking her life into her hands to go glean. 
Let me say that again. She's taking her life into her hands. The reason she is is she is a Moabite woman. And the Moabites, they descend from Sodom. And they are detested by the Israelites. Detested. And so if she's to go out and to beg and she's to be the field and be vulnerable, it's a very good chance that she will be attacked, she will be beaten, she could be raped, she could be literally killed in that process. And so her going out to glean is so much courageous than you see at first glance. She's super courageous. She literally is the gal who left everything to go in as a foreigner and to follow God, to follow Naomi. She went over there and she dropped everything to go and do what she thought was right. And she left her country to go to a new country. It reminds me of a guy um, in the beginning of the Bible, named Abraham, who left his father and left his land, and then he went in to a new land and tried to be faithful to where God was calling him. Jesus did the same thing for us. He left heaven, the comfort of heaven, and he comes down here to a place for us. Ruth is brave. She is brave like Jesus. She's brave like um, Abraham. She is a good, good woman. Verse 8. Boaz went over and said to Ruth, so now they're talking, listen, my daughter, and I love, truly, I love how um, that Boaz actually addressed Ruth as my daughter. He is looking at her through heaven's eyes, through a father's eyes, right? He is a safe person, and he is communicating that he's a safe person. Now, I'm not suggesting that if you're a male and you're in a supermarket and you see a little kid to go over there and say, listen, my daughter, um, that won't go over well. But in this case, in this culture, truly, he is looking at her through a father's eyes. He is a safe person. Stay right here with us. When your father, um, when, when, the ga- when you gather grain, don't go to any other field. Stay right behind the young women working in my field. See which part of the field they are harvesting and then follow them. I have warned the young men not to treat you roughly. What Boaz is doing here is he is protecting Ruth. Like I just said, if she were to go out into some other field, who knows what's going to happen? And it's crazy that God is protecting Ruth through Boaz. The next verse. And then... Or, and when you are thirsty, help yourself to water. They have drawn from the well. And so what else is Boaz doing? He is providing for Ruth. God is providing for Ruth through Boaz. Now the next part, this passage, starting in verse 10, Ruth asks why. Why are you doing this, Boaz? And Boaz responds, and we have to really look in here because this is like the pinnacle and tucked away underneath this scripture, buried away is really an important, huge theological truth that will often get missed if you were to just read through this quickly. So here's what it is. Verse 10, Ruth fell at his feet and thanked him warmly. And here's where she asks why. What have I done to deserve such kindness? I am only a foreigner. And then look at Boaz's response, verse 11. Yes, I know, Boaz replied, but I also know about everything you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. I have heard how you left your father and your mother and your own land to live here among complete strangers. Again, so courageous. May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come, take refuge. And then here's a big word, reward you fully for what you have done. 
Now, we have to be so careful at this point when you interpret this. At first glance, if you were to just skim over this, read it quickly. This story, this book, the life of Ruth, appears to be supporting the, thec- the secular theology of karma, right? What goes around comes around. Oftentimes when people read this book, that's what they interpret. Oh, if you do bad things, bad things will happen to you. If you do good things, good things will happen to you. For example, you say, hey, you do bad things, like you leave Israel and you go marry um, these Moabite ladies, bad things are going to happen. All the men in the family passed away. So that seems to support karma, right? On the other side, you do good things. Ruth goes out. She's faithful to Naomi. um, They come back to Israel where they're supposed to be. And all of a sudden, good things start to happen. And if you read in the rest of the book, you'll see that more and more good things start to happen to Ruth and Naomi. So at first glance, it seems like karma is the answer in the theology of this thing. But that truly leads to legalism. It's leading to the idea that you think if you work hard enough, if you try hard enough, if you do enough, then you can earn a right, you can merit a right to be in right relationship with God the Father. And I'll just be honest with you. This was my life growing up. As someone who really appreciates hard work, truly, as someone who appreciates that, and that's a big deal to me, I thought I could work my way into right relationship, not only with my parents, but with my with, my, with God the Father and with Jesus. And so I would work super hard and I think if I could just do this, God will notice me and he'll be pleased with me and I will work and I work. And I did. Growing up, I, I didn't have, I didn't grow up in a Christian church um, as a child. I really met God when I was right out of high school. And so I didn't, I had this theology or this thought process that I have to prove myself to God. I have to do enough to be good to God. And then at that point, once I have done enough, then God will love me the way that I want him to love me. That's not how it goes. Now let's be truthful. It is true that we do reap what we sow. And there are consequences for our actions, but there is only one act. There is only one deed There is only one work that will be rewarded by God. Just one. And it is the act of faith is what it is. Paul talks about it a whole lot. In fact, James and Paul in the Bible seem to wrestle over this thing. But Paul definitely comes out on top that the only act, the one work that we need to do to be in right standing and in right relationship with God is the act of faith. Check out this verse. It's amazing. In John, Jesus said this in response to his disciples. His disciples said, we, we want to perform God's works too. So Jesus is doing all these miracles. They wanted to do it too. What should we do? Jesus told them, catch this. This is huge. This is the only work. I will repeat that again. The only work and the only work God wants from you. Here it is. Believe. I'll say it again. Believe. Oh, I'll say it again. Believe. Believe in the one he has sent. Who is that? It's Jesus. That's the one act, the one action, the one deed, the one work that we are supposed to do as Christians is truly to simply believe, to have faith in. And if that is you, if you're here and you're, I just got to do enough, and you've come from that old school mentality like I did, where you're just, I got to work harder, and if I just work harder, then, then God will love me, and God will be pleased with me, because I just don't feel like he is right now. I'm telling you right now, he's pleased with you right now, simply because you're his child. 
I mean, as parents, when your kids misbehave, you still love them. You're irritated with them for a second, right? But you love and adore them. And all you want is to be in relationship with that kid. Because you love that kid and you want to provide for them. Same thing with God here. The only act that they want is that we would believe. And so let's look back at verse 12. Because this is the key. This is the pinnacle to this whole chapter. Boaz responds. He says, May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Big word there. Refuge. Reward you fully for what you have done. So let's ask the question straight up. What has Ruth done? She has taken refuge with God. That decision she made on the road, when Naomi tried to push her the other direction, she said, I want to go with you. And the reason she wanted to go with him was because she wanted to go with her God. She wanted to be with his God. So the one act and why she should be rewarded is the only act that we should all be rewarded by, and that's the act of faith, the act of taking refuge. And so here's my first point of the whole talk. God rewards those who take refuge in him. God rewards those who take refuge in him. Now, I only watch a few shows. I love movies, but I'm not a big TV guy, and there's about three shows that I love to watch. Survivor's one of them. Um, uh, uh, American Ninja Warrior, because I'd like to be one. Um, and then the third one is I watch Deadliest Catch all the time. So well, <laughs> my father-in-law speaks. There you are. <laughs> Deadliest Catch is one of my favorite shows to watch. And if you've watched this season, okay, it's the whole idea of these crab fishermen going out into the Bering Sea and throwing down pots and bringing up, um, and bringing up crab. But if you watch it this season, there was this huge record storm that was happening. Um, and so what happened in the middle of it is the waves got so high, the, the weather got so bad that they could no longer fish. Now, they could have tried to continue to fish, but what the entire fleet had to do was they had to take refuge. And where did they take refuge at? behind St. Paul Island, behind St. Paul Harbor. They went in by this little tiny island in the middle of the Bering Sea, and they hid there to block the waves, to block the wind, to block the weather from them. And so here's what could happen. They have big boats, right? They are strong, manly men. They could go out and they could attack these 50-foot waves. And you know what would happen? They would die is what would happen. The boat would flip over, and they would be at the bottom of the Bering Sea. And so the one choice that they really have, the one act, the one deed that they would do if they are wise is what? To take refuge. And that's a one deed that we have. That's the one choice that God gives us is he wants us to take refuge in him. It is such a beautiful picture. I mean, he talks about take refuge under the wing like an eagle. Like we're like the little baby sitting right here and God's got his arm around us. And he's just like, take refuge in me. That's our one thing that we need to do. That's the one act, the one deed. Psalm 57, one, it's beautiful. It says this, have, have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me, for in you I take refuge. And another translation, another way to say that is, have mercy on me because in you I take refuge. I, take, I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. It is such a beautiful picture, and it is so important that you realize that this is not a book, the book of Ruth, about karma. 
It's not about doing good things. It's about taking refuge in God. Does that make sense? It's huge. All right, let's continue forward. Here's what happens next in the story. Boaz is taking care of Ruth. And uh, not only that, he invites her to have lunch with him. So they have bread, they have wine, roasted grain is what they end up having. And Ruth comes in and she, they eat lunch together. And then she goes back out to glean inside of the field. And then Boaz just goes above and beyond at that point. Verse 15, when Ruth went back to the work again, Boaz ordered his young men, let her gather grain right among the sheaves without stopping her. So now she's able to actually gather grain, not just in the margins, but in the thick of things. And Boaz continues as he says, and pull out some heads of barley from the bundles and drop them on purpose for her. Let her pick them up and don't give her a hard time. So here's what's really happening right here from a cosmic scale. God is providing for Ruth is what's happening. And he's using the vehicle of Boaz. Boaz is the means and the way in which God is providing for her. And this is my second point. It's this, is God provides through providence. God provides through providence. Again, Bob talked all about this last week, but it is worth sticking on this point. God, God helps us in two different ways. He has two hands when he helps us. You ready for this? The first hand is the hand, the visible hand of miracles. Some of us have experienced this. We've at least read it in the New Testament where you see God's hand work. This is like where angels speak, come down and speak to us. This is where the blind is healed. This is where the water parts. When God moves his hand, we see it and we are moved by it. But the other hand, and probably the hand he uses the most, is the invisible hand of providence. This is where he arranges situations, circumstances. He is orchestrating our affairs and what we are doing at the right time and in the right situation for our benefit. You've heard that verse. All things work for the good of those who love the Lord. He is behind the scenes, the ultimate chess master that is moving pieces around that are trying to continually bump us back into relationship with him. Or to, you know, I mean, it's so hard to see when we're going through life, this situation, this hand of providence. It's the invisible hand of providence. It's difficult to see. But it is so clear when you look in the rearview mirror, right? It's so hard to see looking forward. It's so clear to see when you look backwards in the rearview mirror. So many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. And that is this, is where you've looked back in your life and you're like, oh my gosh, did you see how God's hand moved in this? That person, I met them at the right time. This situation, it happened when I needed it. Uh, and, and sometimes it doesn't feel good in the moment, but when you look back, you can look back at your life and you go, my goodness, look at how God works. But the hard part is, is looking forward at that invisible hand of providence, it, you have to have faith. That's what God is talking about. You have to believe that he's got your best in mind and that he's truly orchestrating all things because he controls all things for our benefit and mostly so that we can come into right relationship with him so we can see him. Sometimes that's difficult situations. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's wonderful. 
One situation where this happened for me, where I could not see it looking forward, but I can completely see it looking back, was, um, was right before I went to college, literally two weeks before I was supposed to go to college. I came to know Christ right after high school. That was when I walked into a relationship with him, and I was enrolled at a community college, and I was going to get my education there, but I came to know Jesus, and I thought, you know what? I want an education with a Christian background. I had not had that growing up. And so I wanted to know as much as I can about Jesus. So that was my intent. I want to go to Northwest University. That's where I want to go to college so that I can learn about Jesus. But two weeks prior to leaving for college, I got hit by a drunk driver. I worked at a sawmill. I literally took a year off because I have to pay for private college by myself. So I I, 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 like I said, I love to work hard, so I worked in the sawmill, and I worked the swing shift, so I got off at 1 in the morning, and I'm on my way home at 1.30 in the morning, and I'm going, and I'm driving on my way back home, and I'm stopping or slowing down for this car who is about ready to turn, but all of a sudden, I mean, literally, you look in your rearview mirror, and I just talked about being able to see things clearly in your rearview mirror. This car was coming so fast, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm going to get hit. I just, you just, I knew it. There was no way to avoid it. I'm stopped. I didn't have time. So I just grabbed the wheel and held tight and I got hit and my car spun one direction. His car spun the other direction. When I went back and looked at my car, this was unbelievable. The wheel that was like this that normally sits up straight was bent back like that because of the impact. And we ended up stopped facing each other. And I saw him and he saw me and obviously he must have known that he'd been drinking so he started to take off, and he did take off, but his car was damaged. It couldn't go that fast. I tried to get out of my door. I couldn't get out of my door. It was like, like blocked shut, so I went out of the passenger door, and I don't know if it was the adrenaline or what it was, but I chased him down on foot. Um, I raced after him, um, and he parked his car, ironically, at a bar, right? <laughs> so he must have wanted another drink after that situation. And he parked his car in the bar, and he went in the bar, and because I saw him, I went inside of the bar, first time, 18 years old, walked in there, never been in a bar before. I found him, and I said, we have to talk. Let's go outside. I must have said it too loud, or I must have been shaking or something like that, because when I said that, I'm not, this is hilarious, the entire bar emptied to come see the fight in the parking lot. This is Eatonville. It happens all the time, all right? And so... We empty the bar. I'm standing out there face to face with this guy and I'm asking for his license and registration. He's trying to get into another car and to get out of there. Um, I'm telling him he can't leave. And so what he starts doing is he starts throwing rocks at me. I'm not this, like, you can't make this crap up, right? But because he was so drunk, he couldn't hit me with the rocks. And so he's throwing the rocks, and everybody's, like, watching this whole thing. Eventually, he gets in another car. I'll, I can finish the story for you later some other day. My dad eventually tracked him down and got the money from him. I don't know how he did that. I love my dad for that. Um, bounty hunter, my dad, the bounty hunter. But here's the whole point of the story, is that when I got in that wreck, and when that happened, right before I wanted to go to college, I had saved, 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 saved so much money, and now I'm going to have to use that money to buy a new car so I can go to college, and now I don't know if I can go to college. And so, literally, I'm frustrated. The insurance came back, and the amount of money they were going to give me was so under what my car was worth. And so I'm going to be losing money in this process, and I'm so 
angry at God. I'm so frustrated with God. I'm like, you have no idea what you're doing, Lord. I am trying to follow you. I am trying to, um, to love you. I'm trying to learn about you. That's what I want to do. And this happened, and I was so angry. And so we get the insurance money back, and then we end up, um, my dad had this genius idea. He said, you know what? Let's buy the same exact car, the same make, the same model, and let's just go find that car. And so we did, and we got the same one back because he knew that if your car was totaled, you could buy it back for $100. Did you know that? So if your car is totaled, you could buy it back for $100. So we bought a new car, which was not as good as the one I had, and then we had my car back for $100. So what ended up happening, okay, this is huge, is that my entire time at college, um, I had a parts car to take stuff from. So because we're in Eatonville, we parked it in our yard, and we just left it there. And it was in my dad's yard for like four to five years. It just sat in, in, in our property. And whenever my car broke down at college, I could come home and I could get parts for it. We saved thousands, I saved thousands upon thousands upon thousands of dollars. In fact, at one point in time, the motor of my new car blew up and guess what we had in the other car? Another motor. And so my dad and I, we put it back in together. I mean, just literally, God provided. And when I looked at that situation, I just remember being so angry and literally saying, God, you don't know what you're doing. You don't know what you're doing. But when you look in the rearview mirror, God knew exactly what he was doing. He provided and saved me, I mean, literally tens of thousands of dollars and what it would have been because I had another car to be able to pull from. It was amazing. God's hand, his invisible hand of providence is at work in every single one of our lives. It is. It is happening. He never stops working. He never stops going. And maybe you're here and you're like, oh man, things aren't going well. And I'm angry at God for this, or I'm frustrated because of this situation that is happening. I get that. But you never know what God is doing behind the scenes and what he might have up his sleeve right around the corner. And so I want to encourage you, truly encourage you to just hang in there, right? Don't give up. Don't throw in the towel because you honestly never know exactly how God will provide, how he's going to turn things around. In some cases, it is with a miracle, right? It is with the miracles. And often, in some cases, this is true, you may never see it on this side of the eternity and before heaven. Maybe heaven is that miracle. But most often, I see that God, what he ends up doing is he ends up moving through his invisible hand of providence. And so God, like just like he did for Ruth in this, you'll see as this goes on, he is providing for her here. He's providing for her there. It gets better and better and better. And it's the same thing. I'm not saying your life's going to be better and better for this lifetime, but eventually when you step um, foot into eternity, I'm telling you what, it's going to be so good. And you'll look back and you'll go, well, what car wreck? What? Oh my gosh. I got this, I got eternity, life with you. It's amazing, unbelievably amazing. God provides through his providence. Now, let me finish the story or at least finish my section of the story. At the end of the day, Ruth goes home, right? Boaz has been very kind to her. She goes home from gleaning, right? Gleaning with 30 pounds of barley is what it equals out to, 30 pounds. So she walks into the room and Naomi's like, what the heck? Where have you been? 
what did you steal? You know, those kind of things. She comes in and she's like, she asks, where did you get all this food? Where did you gather fruit? And she's like, well, I, I gathered in this field of this guy named Boaz. And then, boom, all of a sudden light comes on, right? And she remembers, oh, I know Boaz, Boaz, so here's what she says about him. And this is crazy because all of a sudden, remember what Bob talked about? That Ruth was this, or I'm sorry, Naomi was this bitter woman and her name was sweet. She's now moving back from bitter back to sweet in this sense. She's hope starting to enter into even her. She says this, may the Lord bless him, talking about Boaz. Naomi told her daughter-in-law, he is showing his kindness to you as well as to your dead husband. That man, and boom, lights back on, is one of our closest relatives, one of our family redeemers. And I don't want to ruin the story for Bob um, as he tells the end of the story, but Boaz and Ruth eventually get married, okay? And, and Boaz becomes Ruth's kinsman redeemer. And so legally speaking, that's, that's a complicated situation there. Legally speaking, Naomi lost her property. She lost her land. She lost everything that she had there. And there's only two ways in God's word, in God's law, that she could get those back. One way is called the Jubilee. Every 50 years, land went back to the original family owners. But 50 years is a long time to wait. That's like half a lifetime. Sometimes that is a lifetime in their situation. And so the only other way is to get back is to have a family relative buy the land back. And it must be someone in the family. So legally speaking, Boaz has to marry, um, if you will, Naomi. She could marry Naomi. He could marry Naomi. And by doing so, he'd have the right to buy the land back for her. But Naomi is so old, she's not able to bear children anymore, so that's not the right option to be able to go, because children and family were so important in that situation. Sons were so important in that situation. So she, or he decides to marry Ruth, and in doing so, this is so cool. Look at God's providence in this. Instantly, when Ruth marries Boaz, she moves from poverty to prosperity, right? Instantly, his massive wealth becomes her massive wealth. She was a widow, and now she is a wife. She moves from misery to motherhood, and she was the mother of a son named Obed, and that might not mean a whole lot to you, okay? But she was also the great-grandmother, okay, of a little boy named David, and David was the one who knocked down Goliath and became king, and so she's not only that, she is also the great, 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 hang with me, great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus. So if you're looking at God's providence of his hand, that's it right there, right through Ruth. And that's my last point is this, is that Boaz was a redeemer to Ruth, but God is our ultimate redeemer. God is our redeemer. The word redeemer is goel. And basically there are three goels. There are three redeemers in the book of Ruth. There is the formal redeemer, which is Boaz. He is the kinsman redeemer. He redeemed Ruth and Naomi to the property that they had. There is a surprise hidden redeemer, that is Ruth. She literally was the redeemer to Naomi when she came back with him. 
And she is what is known as a shadow or a foreshadow of the real thing. And oftentimes the Bible does this. They take characters and people and they are shadows or foreshadows of what is to come. And Ruth and Boaz are foreshadows of the great real redeemer, which is Jesus. It is Jesus. Jesus is the true and better version of Boaz. Jesus is the true and better version of Ruth. And they were good people, right? They were good people, but it's not about being good. It's not about being good. As we talked about, it is about finding refuge in Jesus. And Jesus, like Ruth, came down from heaven into, quote unquote, a foreign land. And he paid the price that we could not pay. That is the gospel. We could not be in right relationship without him. But because Jesus did what he did, he died on a cross, he proved that he was God, rose from the grave, we have an opportunity to be in right relationship with him. So you can work, 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 work to try to please God, and you won't be able to, or you could simply do the one work that matters all the time with him, and that is faith, the act of faith. And when you are giving that act of faith, when you are a believer, what's amazing is God has your best in mind. I think he has the best in mind for everyone. All he's trying to do in this providence, this chess match, is to try to draw people to him because that is what is the most important. And so if you feel far from God today, if that's you, my prayer is that you would take refuge in his wing. You would look at this story. You'd look at this amazing woman named Ruth. You'd look at this faithful man of Boaz. And you think to himself, what did they do? Well, they followed Yahweh. They followed God the Father. And we, through Jesus, can be in right relationship with him as well. Let's pray.